As you know, a delegation from Stephen Wise traveled to Greece and Germany on a refugee relief mission. Rabbi Fersco spoke about our experiences last week. I urge you to view her sermon online. I'll add my own detailed impressions next week. Tonight, I want to emphasize how emotionally involved and affected we were. To see what we saw, to feel what we felt, is to be changed forever. We are not the same people in June as we were in May. At least I hope not. Something happened to us that was so deep and so profound as to affect our very philosophy of life, our purpose, our reason, our rationale. By looking into the eyes of those who suffered in ways unimaginable to us, the pain of a broken soul crashes upon your own happy countenance, reminding you that luck, not skill, is often the decisive agent of our contentment. We are a pipe for fortune's finger to sound what stop she please. As one millennial Afghani refugee told us, with no anger in his voice, no edge, and now possessing nothing but the clothes on his back, the only difference between you and me is that I was born in Afghanistan. The slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, not inferior human composition, targeted those beautiful children swarming around us wherever we went to be refugees. They're like any other children in any other place in the world. They're like our children, just as smart, just as energetic. I could envision them on any playground in New York City, in any school in New York City, excelling in any endeavor that we value. We have returned humbled, if not broken, to the fundamental truth of human existence. We are the slaves of chance and flies of every wind that blows. Heightened awareness of the extent of our capacity for evil and the ease with which we impose suffering on each other. It's devastating. An appreciation that ineluctably and inevitably possesses you through the unending and unfiltered testimony of God's suffering creatures. You come to realize that no matter what we may think of ourselves, we're hardly better than the ancients, and perhaps worse, since we have so much more technological capacity to inflict our worst impulses on each other. After all, it was 2,400 years ago and less than a mile from where we were lodging in Athens that Pericles proclaimed, the Athenians 
confer their benefits not from calculations of expediency, but in confidence of liberality. Are we as confident today in our liberality? We differ from our antagonists, said Pericles. We throw open our city to the world and never exclude foreigners from any opportunity, trusting the native spirit of our citizens. Are we as trusting today of the native spirit of our citizens? Our Constitution affords equal justice to all, Pericles proclaimed, class considerations not being allowed to interfere with merit. Nor does poverty bar the way. We do not feel called upon to be angry with our neighbor for doing what he likes. Are we so generous with our neighbors today? A century before Pericles, the Hebrew poet of Psalm 34 wrote, Sur mira ve tov shalom. Verotfehu, turn from evil, do good, plead for peace, and pursue it. Two and a half millennia later, are we so eager today to turn from evil and to do good, to plead for peace and pursue it? Three centuries before the psalmist, the prophet Isaiah lamented, Woe unto those who call evil good and good evil, who present darkness as light and light as darkness, who portray bitterness as sweetness and sweetness as bitterness. Are we that different today? nearly 3,000 years later. So what arrogance must we moderns possess to assume that because we have a computer in our pockets, we are morally superior to the ancients, that we have progressed by moral leaps and bounds beyond their most ambitious moral aspirations? On what basis do we presume to be better than those who came before? Because we can find all of the moral teachings of humanity instantly, but never read them, never study them, and don't value them. But there is also another side. By being in the refracted radiance of aid workers and first responders, you develop an appreciation that ineluctably and inevitably overwhelms you through the unending and unfiltered testimony of God's noblest creatures. That the warmth of the human spirit can shatter the icicles of your heart and thaw 
the frozen pieces of your soul. And it can melt you. It can point to the ineluctable and inevitable truth that the human spirit is the wellspring of life. The human spirit both causes and relieves suffering. We do not study enough the human spirit. We give it short shrift today. We live in an age of machine-driven determinism. Who has time for philosophy or religion? Philosophy is for wusses. And religion is for intellectual pygmies who should have grown out of their moral infancy long ago. This is the age of the computer. We can Google any question we have about life. And Google tells us that there is no such thing as a soul. I can find that online in 10 seconds. The soul is a fantasy concocted to blind the masses and dull the truth of human existence that life is meaningless, pointless, and useless. There is a stunning passage in this week's Torah portion, Beha'alotcha. Moses is in the midst of enduring another rebellion. This time, the people complain bitterly that there's nothing good to eat out there in the wilderness. If only we had meat to eat. They complain, now our gullets are shriveled. Moses is exasperated. He can't believe that after the miracle of liberation and the precious gift of revelation, the people are back to complaining. And about what? Food. Moses turns his wrath, impatience, despair, and emotional fatigue towards God. Did I conceive this people? Did I bear them that you should say to me, carry them in your breast as a wet nurse carries an infant? Where am I to give meat to this people who whine before me and say, give me meat? I cannot carry this people by myself. They're too much for me. Kill me. I beg of you and let me see no more of my wretchedness. Moses confesses to God. There's just too much human misery for him to deal with. He's at the end of his rope. The helplessness of the people the physical and emotional needs they have, and expect him to provide food for these refugees from Egypt and loving attention for these homeless wanderers to prosper is too much. 
even for Moses to bear. He's no more energy to give. How much can one individual endure before cracking? Every expenditure of physical or emotional energy seems to deplete Moses more and more. Seeing that Moses has reached the end of his capacities, God ordered him to gather 70 of the elders of Israel and bring them to the tent of meeting. And when the 70 elders gathered, we read this remarkable verse. And God came down in a cloud and spoke to Moses. God drew the spirit that was within Moses and put it upon the 70 elders. What a gorgeous verse and a stunning sentiment. Instead of implanting a special new spirit into the 70 elders, instead of bringing down new inspiration from the heavens and creating a new reservoir of moral and organizational energy, God took a portion of Moses' spirit. It's called Ruach. God took part of Moses' Ruach and redistributed it into each of the 70 elders. The assumption is that something like, in every case, 170th of Moses' spirit was taken from him and in equal amounts transferred to one of the elders. And so the natural question is, how much spirit did Moses have left? If we are to suppose that Moses had a full spirit before God began taking pieces of his spirit, that is, if we are to start with 100%, how much was left to Moses after this process was done? At most, I think, 30%. It's been a while. If we assume that each elder received 1%, at best, Moses was 30% of the man he was before he protested to God that he no longer had the strength to attend to the people's misery. Because at first glance, we assume that seven-tenths of Moses' energy and inspiration were redistributed, 1% per person, leaving Moses still with the largest percentage, but spreading most of his energy around to 70 other people. And that would make sense to us because 70% of the energy exerted by 70 people would presumably be more efficient than 70% of the energy distributed by one person. But the rabbis interpret this passage in a completely different way. They teach that the divine spirit was taken from Moses to distribute to each of the elders without diminishing the spirit of Moses. The sages teach, as wisdom can be given to another without any diminution of its source, 
And as the light of a candle can light another candle without extinguishing the first light, so the human spirit can be transferred from one human being to another without any diminution of energy from the source. At that moment of transferring his spirit to the 70 elders, to what may Moses be compared, the rabbis ask, to a lamp which is set on a candelabrum from which many lights are kindled but does not lose one single bit of its own light. This is what we saw in Europe. Not only human misery caused by human beings, but human light transferred from one moral agent to another without any diminution of the original light. To the contrary, it just added more and more light. This is the essential truth that should govern our moral behavior. You can give of yourself without depleting yourself. The more you give, the more you have to give. The burden of relieving suffering should not be borne by one person or even one group of people. It must be borne by all. <coughs> the Spirit of God rests upon you. You can. You must. Share it with others. You need not fear that by giving to others, you will deplete your own spirit. It's not a zero-sum game. Your bounty is as boundless as the seas. Your spirit is as deep as the oceans. The more of your spirit you give, the more you have to give. For both are infinite.